You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In 1956, Albert Wilson died. The Minnesota man was receiving $134 a month in pension. He was honored by President Eisenhower. The death of a pensioner, even a veteran, would not be historic, except for this fact. Albert Wilson's pension came from his service in the Union Army during the Civil War. Mr. Wilson, how it outlasted over two million others to become the last veteran of the Union Army to die. At the time of his death, Life magazine listed three other supposed veterans on the Confederate side who were still alive, though each of those cases has been in dispute. Even in Mr. Wilson's case, it appears that he served a lot earlier than others did. He might have only been 12 or 13 when he enlisted in the Army and served as a drummer and a bugler. Wilson's case, a man receiving a pension 90 years after the conflict, is indicative of the true costs of war, which are difficult to measure at the time it begins. But it may also tell us something about what the federal government can do and what it cannot. The third rail is a part of a subway line that carries a powerful electric voltage. It propels a train forward. And if someone were somehow able to leap onto the tracks and touch this rail, the voltage could kill them. Thus the saying in that transit-familiar city of Washington that social security is the third rail of politics. Touch it and die. Alf Landon and Barry Goldwater were Republican nominees for presidents who tried to touch the rail. President Reagan smartly took it off the table. George W. Bush attempted to make a change, even one that would not directly touch the elderly receiving the benefits now, and still he felt the shock, which in some way damaged his second term. But those who know the New York subway know that in some places there are two tracks uptown and downtown, and thus there are two third rails, each equally deadly, propelling trains in opposite directions. Are there now also two third rails in American politics? On one side, Social Security payments for the weakest of society, senior citizens, who are also the most powerful political group, with turnout rates that political consultants would dream of in the larger population. The issue's voltage comes from sympathy for the aged, but also from the perceived entitlement. Social Security is based on worked earnings, which means it seems like stealing when the program is touched, even if you're only touching it for young people entering the program. Could it be that the second third rail is health care? Perhaps too big, perhaps too personal, too divisive too established as a private industry, 
to grab at. Two third rails in opposite directions, one an attempt to scale back a program, the other an attempt to create one. With a broad brush, the verdict of history, now enhanced by the recent presidency, is hard to argue with in terms of overhaul of the American healthcare system. Truman tried, Nixon tried, Carter advocated a plan but didn't launch it, Clinton tried, and now President Obama is trying. Each time, there is some political shock. Is that the story that history will tell about this? I should pause here and say that Obama has not failed. Never underestimate an American president, especially one who retains decent personal approval ratings, despite a very bad economic situation, and one who has well-regarded communication skills. It could turn out very well for him, for his party, and could turn out very well for all of our health care. But it's highly likely that his plan now will be limited, not the kind of overhaul that was being planned at the beginning of his administration. This, perhaps, is not President Obama grabbing a third whale, getting an electric shock as much as a tiny zap. But why does healthcare overhaul carry this shock, perhaps? In the case of Social Securities, we said it's so much like taking away something. In healthcare, ostensibly, the Congress wants to give the American people something. The president wants to give a new benefit to those who do not have it. Let's look at some history. When Abraham Lincoln sent his message to Congress in 62, in these days a president did not appear before the body and merely sent a letter and delivered, among other things, department reports. One of these departments was the pension office. As the Civil War was underway, there were 22,000 invalids who would be receiving pensions from the federal government. Given the hostilities that were going on, this was not surprising. But was surprising is he also noted that there were 1,430 pensions due for Revolutionary War service. Now, only 12 of these in 1862 were actual soldiers. The rest were dependents and spouses of soldiers. The budget for the pension office was $4 million. $4 million, that is, depending how you calculate it, it is somewhat near 5 to $10 billion today. Depends what system of calculation you use. And it represented a large chunk of the non-war budget. But Civil War pensions, as 1812 pensions and Mexican War pensions, were not entirely seen as non-war expenses. They helped recruiting, at least. If the male head of the family went to war and they were injured in the war, at least the family could get a pension. It was a kind of insurance to assuage the resistance to recruiting. Pensions for American military service were created in 1818 when Congress, after 40 years of pressure from veterans, decided to award pensions to the now-aging Revolutionary War veterans who were in reduced capacity. It was expanded to apply to all veterans in the 1830s. Civil War pensions underwent the same transformation, began in the Civil War just for invalids. In 1873, they were extended to widows and to children of those who had received pensions. That person could have been providing income to their spouse, could have been providing savings to the family that could have been useful to the children. So the government stepped in. In 1890, the pensions were extended to all Union veterans who were disabled in any fashion. And during Theodore Roosevelt's second term, age itself became an acceptable disability to receive a pension. These Civil War pensions 
made no distinction in payout between widows and soldiers, same amount of money. This was ostensibly a military service, but also certainly a political factor, with a strong backing of the Grand Army of the Republic, a powerful soldier organization and a lobby group for Republicans. Albert Wilson, the last soldier pensioner of the Civil War, was also the last member of the Grand Army of the Republic. And with his death, the organization ended and went into history. Because of the wide group of recipients of these union pensions, the system can be seen as an early form of social security, taking care of a pretty broad group of older people when you include all Civil War veterans and spouses. There were struggles to enact them. Although the early country wanted to reward Revolutionary War veterans, there was a long period before official pensions began. In the 1880s, President Grover Cleveland opposed expansion of the system on fiscal grounds. And no federal pension was ever established for Confederate veterans. There were attempts made by the turn of the century. Southerners had argued, we're contributing federal taxes which are going to union pensions. We should get pensions too. That was never voted, but southern states had their own pension systems. Still overall, it was hard to argue with pensions. They were a political winner, and the government accomplished the task of providing them. Who can argue with pensions for veterans, right? Especially those who were disabled and aged. Motive notwithstanding, it also represents a muscular action taken by the federal government, superseding states for a national purpose that benefited many individuals directly, getting money directly from the federal government to people. The building of a national road is less emotional, but no less muscular. It doesn't tug at our heartstrings. Although, if we were a Western American in the early days of our country, we might feel differently. A road out west was a link to the future. Certainly for Thomas Jefferson and the Congress of 1806, dominated by Western Republicans, a road out into the wilderness would not just be the place to go for a ride. It would bring commerce out to the wilderness. It would help communities grow. It would make settlement more realistic. You can move that farther out from the road and and have a realistic settlement. Help secure lands that were obtained by the U.S. from Napoleon, Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Thus, the National Road, or Cumberland Road as it's also known, was created. It went from Cumberland, Maryland, through southwestern Pennsylvania to Wheeling, Virginia, now in West Virginia. It was ordered to be 60 feet wide and made of stone. The construction began in 1811, and it wasn't finished until 1839. Eventually, the road would be expanded and would go all the way through to Illinois. Although it was a government program, The road was contracted out to companies in order to complete it, and that practice was emulated by many states. The cost of the National Road, the Cumberland Road, was $7 million over that period. That's $4 billion in today's dollars by the most conservative measure, which is the Consumer Price Index, right? Matching the price of items then versus the price of items now. But if you use a different scale, the comparison of the wages of an average unskilled worker and how much that would purchase. The National Road cost $107 billion in today's dollars and is comparable to the entire U.S. transportation budget. In 1919, a young Army officer crossed the country in an Army convoy. He used the road available at that time to do that, the Lincoln Highway. The ride was a bit awkward, far from being the most direct straight line. This was mostly because the Lincoln Highway didn't really exist as such. 
It was the work of car manufacturers and hotel owners. It was a marketing more than it was a highway. It was a connection of highways that already existed, linking them together with one name and with some specific markers to indicate that that road was part of this Lincoln Highway. There were even parts where there was disagreement over where the official Lincoln Highway was and parts where there would be two different sprouts of the same highway. Only in a few portions of the Lincoln Highway were there model roads that were supposed to be continued by others, but in most cases not. As president, this young army officer, Dwight David Eisenhower, advocated for the Federal Highway Act. It was passed in 1956, creating highways across America, paid for by the federal government, about $425 billion in 2006 dollars. Limited highways had been built by the Bureau of Roads starting in 1921, with national defense being an important motive, increased under Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. But the interstate highway system of Eisenhower and the Democratic Congress at the time was the largest federal investment in roads. What do roads and pensions tell us about health care? Lots, actually. There are some things that it's difficult to imagine a private sector undertaking. They can, of course, participate through contracting. Most federal, state, and local spending of this kind goes to some person's company. We can see the federal government in roads or pensions, things that must be ordered to happen. Markets can make things happen, too, but they are caught up in consumer needs, individual needs, right? They are less good at getting people to pay for somebody else's expense for third parties. I'll stack a market up against a government any day in the delivery of, of groceries. When you need it, it's the Piggly Wiggly and not the Department of Food that will be the best place to get bread or milk. And I'll say that the Starbucks and not the Bureau of Roasting will have the best coffee. But how do you get accomplished things that there is no market need for except for a very small piece of it? So... If it's a road and your house is here and your work is eight miles away, well, you might pay for that portion, but not for somebody else's commute. Yet you have to. When states first started road projects, they struggled with this because the states who were getting involved in road building didn't often have as much money to play with as the federal government. So they experimented with working with other corporations to get the job done, road corporations, who many times wanted to institute a toll. Often, an exact profit was regulated by the state legislature. The tolls could be on the road until it earned X, but nothing after that. Profit, but it would be a regulated one. Tolls are, in effect, inefficient, but they are the market way of building a road, right? If you don't want to pay for a road through your taxes, cert a toll, and you'll pay for it when you ride it. It's fair in a sense, because you're only paying for what you use. But they're inefficient in this way. As any resident of Massachusetts or New Jersey may tell you, often a road is paid for several times over and certainly paid for more than the share what, how much you use it. And in terms at least of psychological imposition in our lives, tolls are right up there with taxes. And there's other factors that lead governments to build a road. I mean, good iron hand is needed to build a road to property rights must be interrupted. Invisible hand, not so good in this area. So why then can the nation plow through wild forests with stone or sprawl across the West with concrete, but not help its citizens heal when they are sick? They do feed them when they are hungry. There are food stamps, a program that was off and on before Lyndon Johnson formalized it 
1964. That program, it is instructive, was pushed in the administration, the Agriculture Secretary, and it was passed in Congress by the Agriculture Committee. This reveals one of the motives of the program. It does help the poor. It also helps farmers. So why don't we have health care stamps? One need only to visit the bedside of our nation's first president, George Washington, in 1799, as he lay dying, the most honored man in the Republic, who fell ill with an infection. He received the best health care of his time, well-regarded doctors. Leeches were used to bleed him. By the way, these little insects do get a bit of a bad rap. Sometimes, reducing the patient's blood was the right thing to do. It was just that doctors didn't understand when to do it and not to do it. It was an unscientific practice. And there was, of course, no way to transfuse new blood back into the patient. Practice that they can do now, but not then. Doctors would also take hot metal and in effect, burned the patient, creating a sore. We felt that the pus resulted from that sore was something that needed to get out of the patient. In effect, the doctor had only created an infection. This technique was used on George Washington. Yet we should not be so harsh on these early doctors. These methods were seen as an improvement over the butchery that had been medicine. But despite improvements in medicine and attitudes towards patient care, Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. By new American doctors, the success rate was still low. So it's simple to see there why no provision for health care was written into the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Cities at the time did have hospitals. We had doctors, had less than England. But health care was not a given. It was not a guaranteed improvement. On top of that, there's the legal question. Most of the Bill of Rights is telling what the government can't do to you, not what it must do for you. The General Welfare Clause allowing Congress to act for the general welfare probably can allow government to provide universal care for everyone should it want to. Of course, it would be a long and controversial undertaking. What else has government done? Created an army and a navy? Even that was controversial in the early days. Post office to deliver mails? A customs collection agency? A mint? The essentials of government? It did not until much later feed, house, or clothe anyone. Education at first was only financed by localities, churches, and state governments. It became a federal concern only late in the 20th century. George H.W. Bush wanted to be an education president. That wouldn't have made sense to George Washington, or even to Woodrow Wilson, the nation's first Ph.D. president, former president of Princeton University. Still would have thought it strange for a president to be talking about education, the Federal government had absolutely no concern in that regard. The government got strong during Franklin Roosevelt's term, but the programs he created were temporary, and only some of them, like the FDIC or the Social Security system, are what we remember and what survived today. Let us not forget that even Social Security is a limited program, and it applies only to a limited group. Part of the reason for the program was to get this group of senior citizens out of the jobs that they were in in the 30s so that a younger person could be employed. It also must be noted that this great government program does not represent a handout. If you don't work, you don't get the program. It's a mandatory insurance program aimed at a group that actuaries found were not saving enough to live off of, or that cycles of business were too unkind to, and that would become wards of the state or a real drag on their families if there wasn't some program in place for retirees. Medicare is also aimed at a small, vulnerable group, and it is not free. It is the closest to a socialist system that we have. It does not employ a single doctor. It finances doctors who are in their own private practice. The rest of great society was aimed at helping the poor. HUD programs, food stamp programs, then the newer programs such as Head Start or CHIP. Children's Health Insurance Program. So here we can make a couple of conclusions. In U.S. history, government is, of course, a limited actor compared with other governments. We know that. It acts big at times with uh, four distinctions, three good and one perhaps sinister. It acts limited in scope, specific, this particular road. It acts for a class of sacred people, veterans, children, old, poor, And it acts usually in general welfare with some hint of national security in almost all these programs. Roads to move troops if it ever became necessary. Education to help us beat the Soviet scientists. Pensions to help us recruit troops. Very often the programs have that hint. Then there's a fourth and more sinister, perhaps just human element, the politics. Most of these programs create votes. Pensions lobbied for, supported by the Grand Army of the Republic. And those pensioners and members of the Grand Army Republic became 
Republican voters. Rhodes had the lobbying and support of contractors and Western politicians looking to enhance their settlements and owners of Western land. The federal highway system had the lobbying, not only of generals, but also of road-building companies and auto companies. The Great Society, while it helped people, it also added those who were receiving benefits in great numbers to Democratic roles. Medicare and Social Security helped Democrats, no doubt, though Republicans voted for both of those programs when they were up for a vote. Is it crude to talk about the politics of a program? Well, it's present. It's a phenomenon that is present in the building of all these programs. When we look at these conditions and plug in the kind of health care reform that President Obama is talking about, that Democrats in Congress are talking about, is largely being discussed on the airwaves, where you have a universal mandate. Everyone must get insurance. And if you're low income, the government pays for it. And you're also going to kind of affect what insurance companies do. It's a bit different from these programs. One reason is there is no particular, and I'll put it in quotes, sacred class that is being addressed with health care reform. The closest you come to this is the uninsured. The problem being the uninsured is a very mobile group that would be hard to organize in any political sense. And there's different reasons why people are uninsured. There's very little commonality between a small businessman who has no insurance, a young person who chooses not to get insurance because the cost and perhaps even the subsidized cost were just too high for their current income level, and they feel strong enough not to take the insurance. Someone who has no insurance because they lost a job and may very well in a year get another one, and someone who is just too poor to simply afford insurance. Those are four distinct groups that might be hard to organize politically together, and they might all vote different ways. The program's not temporary. The program's not limited in scope. There is obviously no hint of national security of this program. I mean, President Obama could try to say, if we're not healthy, we're not going to be able to stand up to the terrorists or to the Iranians or to the Afghans or what have you. And then there's a scoping problem. And this directly relates to simply the term health care. We talk about health care, we throw it out, but there are so many aspects to quote health care, which you're covering hospitals, drug treatments, physician visits, who, who knows what's in that realm of quest. And that, I believe, helps the argument that some people will make. I don't want to pay for someone else's health care. But is this just a fiction? Are we only having this discussion because Republicans put the Democrats there? Because Republicans acted as obstructionists, refused to consider any ideas, stalled and stalled, voted almost in lockstep against the Democratic proposals for health care, and then in a Senate election managed to win a seat. Are we only compromising in a bipartisan fashion because the other party is insisting on being absolutely stubborn and not addressing the program for political reasons rather than problem-solving reasons? So that even if there is a potential group of people that it would be nice to help for political long-term strategy, they know it's better to beat a party down, to beat a president down, win the midterm, get control of the House perhaps, and then run the country maybe win the presidency in another two years. And so it's not about 
what's the best way to get people health care. It's about politics. It's possible. Certainly, the Republican Party in this debate has been oppositional. The counter to that framing of the discussion would be this. Rare has been the poll that has indicated significant support for the health care reform that's proposed by President Obama or by the Senate Democrats or a combined program. There is support for certain elements, in some cases, say a public option, patient's bill of rights, where you cannot, you have to cover someone with a pre-existing condition. That's polled high. But the overall reform program doesn't show support and constituents just aren't overly excited about it. Looking at that fact and looking at some of the history of past programs the federal government has enacted, my only conclusion is that instead of looking at, quote, health care, the aspects of should be dealt with directly. If you want to deal with pre-existing conditions, deal with it, have a vote. If you want to deal with helping people who are unemployed and need their COBRA extended, or if the government wants some permanent role in COBRA, or a specific program not to help all people without health insurance, but people who had a job and lost it, address that. If we want to lower the age that someone could get into Medicare to address the fact that maybe someone in their early 60s is not going to go out and get another job that easily, address that. There's likely several bills that could be passed prior to the 2010 midterms. President Obama does not think highly of incremental change. But I think a reasonable pathway would be passing some of these pieces of legislation, going to the midterms, and uh, using that as a referendum. If we don't call elections in, in America, that's for Britain to do. The midterms are the closest we get to that. And as we talked about in the podcast on staves, a win in the midterms does not necessarily mean the president's party has to gain seats. The expectations game is so low for an American president in their first term midterm. Not losing the House would, I would believe, for this president, at least in the situation right now, after the, the Brown election and all the momentum that was coming that way, would actually look pretty good. And then, depending on how many seats are lost, you get grades out from there. I want to thank you for listening. The website is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The archives, $9.99 as a special recession price. The Facebook site is a great place to talk to people who are getting close to 750 on that site. You can talk to people, talk about the podcast. As an incentive to go there to the Facebook site, if you go now, there is an extra podcast on the concept of who are the founding fathers? What is this term? Who can be counted as the founding father? And we talk about the Constitutional Convention. It's a good podcast to have some foundational knowledge about the Constitutional Convention. So that's there on the Facebook site. Thank you for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.